your Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're in a series on stewardship. And so we've been talking about doing a good job uh, with those things that God has entrusted to us. Uh, Some people have a lot that they're stewarding. Some people have a little. But we're all stewards before God. And we've been talking for several weeks about a lot of different aspects of stewardship. Last week, we talked specifically about stewarding finances, but stewardship's a lot bigger than than finances. It's a lot more than that. Um, But one of the principles of stewardship is that the better job you do, the more stuff you're going to be given to steward. That's a principle of the kingdom. That's what Jesus told us. He said, he who is faithful in a little will be faithful in a lot. Uh, You know, and, and, and the one that has been faithful will be made ruler over much. And uh, he says, actually, the one who has a lot, even more will be given. And the one who has a little, even that will be taken away because of stewardship. They didn't steward what they had. Whether you have a little, whether you have a lot, depending on how you steward it, God will bless you with more. This makes sense, right? If, you, if you're in a business or you own a business or you, you give more to those people that have been faithful and have done a good job with what you've already given them. And God's the same way. This is the principle of stewardship. But the, the issue with that is, that I want to talk about this morning, is that sometimes when we have been good stewards, and I'm, what, really who I'm talking to this morning, is those that have been in the Christian faith for a while, okay? Because if you've been walking with God and you've maybe stewarded some things well for Him, there's blessing that comes along with that, but you have to be careful Because when blessing comes, there's something else that can happen in your heart. There's something else that can begin to go on in here. And it doesn't actually, uh, it's not unique to an individual. This is a shared experience among all humans because we have a sin nature. And our sin nature does not gravitate towards uh, being thankful. It, It actually gravitates towards being unthankful. And let's talk about in Deuteronomy chapter 6 this issue that can rise in our hearts. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 10. God who knows the human beings that he created so well, he, he explains this to them. They're about to come into the promised land and they've been through so much, right? Hundreds of years of slavery, you know, 40 years in the wilderness, And they've had nothing but struggle, nothing but difficulty. And you would think after coming through generations of struggle and difficulty that the moment they get into the promised land, it'd be nothing but thankfulness, glory, and praise to God. I mean, look at what we've come out of. Look at what, look at what God did, how he delivered us from Egypt, the ten plagues, brought us in the wilderness, gave us the law, all the signs, wonders, miracles. We saw him on the mountaintop. Uh, when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's just all these things that God has done. You would, you would think that it would be natural and it would be easy to live from that point forward just in a constant place of gratitude and thankfulness for God and who God is. But God knows the human heart and he knows the human nature. And so he explains in Deuteronomy 6.10, he says, and when uh, it's Moses saying this, God, but God through Moses. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards, and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, 
then take care lest you forget. Everybody say forget. forget. He said take care lest you forget. And my first thought when I read this is how? How could you possibly forget? How could you forget coming out of Egypt? How could you forget the plagues? How could you forget the blessings? How could you forget? Because now they're in the promised land. How could you forget the promised land? But I've seen this over and over and over and over again in the human nature, in the human sin nature. That no ma- and, and, and you see this a lot in kids, even, where they, it doesn't matter how much they get, how much they've been given. It does not lead to thankfulness. It doesn't lead to thankfulness. It's, it's sad. It doesn't lead to thankfulness. And, and in the sin nature, the way it is, it's so unfortunate. So many times, in order for a, a human being to be truly thankful, they have to have it all taken away first. And I wish it weren't that way. But this is what God's doing. He's trying to avoid that. So he's warning them in advance. He's saying, you need to really take care. You need to really take care lest you forget what the Lord has done for you. Listen, you need to go ahead and just accept this, this fact that the heart, the sinful nature, it leads to forgetfulness, no matter how, how good God has been. And this is why we do all the things of remembrance. If you read through the Bible, there's so much in Scripture about calling to remembrance those things. that, In other words, not just relying on the idea that you're going to remember but specifically doing things to bring them before you and setting up things as a memorial so that you don't forget. That the purpose of the memorial, the purpose of the festivals, the sacrifices, all of it was to bring to remembrance the things that God's done. Even when we do communion, okay, when we receive communion as a church, what are we doing? We're bringing to remembrance what God has done on the cross. We're bringing to remembrance the blood of Christ, the cross, the redemption, all the things that he's done. And so God did this with the people of Israel. He would have them do festivals and, and ceremonies and, you know, the Passover. And what was the point of the Passover? It was to remember how God brought them out of Egypt, not only for them, but for their children from every generation. Let's not forget what God has done. Because, trust me, the sinful heart leads to forgetfulness and ungratefulness. And it has to be intentional if you're going to be grateful and you're going to be thankful. And you're not going to go down that path. So he says, you're going to receive all this. Houses you didn't build. Vineyards you didn't plant. All of that. And he says, when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord. Now, I could preach a whole sermon I'm not going to this morning. But I could preach a whole sermon on how this reminds me of America. This reminds me of America. How this country was founded. The, the blessing. The most prosperous nation on earth. We, have, we are literally walking this out right now. We have forgotten why we are so great. We have forgotten how we arrived at this place. We have, you know, used to generations ago... It was, a, it was part of the normal culture. Christianity and Jesus and God was part of the normative experience of being an American. Not today. We've abandoned that. We've kicked God out of schools. We've kicked God out of, out of movies, out of television, and in some cases out of churches. But that's a whole. We won't go there either. But this is, this is the same thing that's happening and has happened in America. We're not at the end of it yet. I think there's still time to repent. Uh, that, and that's what we work for. But 
He says, take care lest you forget the Lord. When you eat and are full, when you're blessed on every side, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. Now, again, you would think this is impossible. There's no way this could happen. There's no way that God's going to take the chosen people of Israel, reveal himself in the, in, in the most powerful way in the wilderness that anyone's ever seen God. No one had ever visibly seen God. He reveals himself on the mountain. He parts the Red Sea. Okay, he, he, he gives them the Ten Commandments. And you would think, there's no way this can happen. There's no way that after God revealing himself to a group of people, and he removes all of the others from the promised land, all those that have rejected him, all those that are living in, in sin, all those that have abandoned, that, that are far from God, he removes them all out. There's no way that he's going to bring the people of God into that land, and then they are going to reject the true God and then turn and start following the false gods that the people who were there before them were following. There's no way that's going to happen, right? That can't happen, right? But that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens. And he warns them in advance. He says, listen, when I bring you into the land that I've sworn to you, don't forget about coming out of Egypt. Don't forget about the wilderness. He says, you will fear God, you will serve God, and you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. In other words, don't take your eyes off me and start looking at the culture and, and wanting what the culture has. Don't, don't abandon God and start looking at, for us, for us. Don't start looking at the American culture and going after those things, going after other, and abandon the true God. But yet, that's exactly what's happening in our nation. And it's what's happening in the church world in, in a lar- and to a large degree is that people are abandoning God, and they're going after the culture, and it's creeping into every generation. You know, I was thinking about this this morning, about why is it that we had previous generations that there seemed to be, uh, in America, there seemed to be more of a cultural acceptance of God, and that that we've lost that with every generation. Well, somehow, it's not being passed down from generation to generation. Somehow, it's getting lost in translation. Somehow, what was real to one person is not being made real to their children and it, be, and it being passed down. But yet this is the plan of God, that it would go from generation to generation to generation. Now in Exodus chapter 20 verse 3, God gives the Ten Commandments and here is the very first commandment that he gives. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This, to our modern ears, can sort of sound like a little bit of a strange commandment. 
especially to be the very first commandment that God gives. Now, we understand this part. I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. Like, we, we understand that part, right? That God wants to be first. And he doesn't want anything to be beside him. He is God. And, and it's not just that God wants to be first, and he doesn't want any other gods beside him. It's that in reality, he is first. And there are no other gods beside him. So that, that's the reality of it. So it's not, that, it's not that he's just saying, hey, I want it to be like this. He's saying, this is how it is, so don't pretend it's some way else. Okay? But this other part, this is where for modern ears we go, really, this, this had to be the first commandment? You know, because there's other things in there, right? Don't steal, don't kill, right? Don't commit adultery. And for those, we, under, we get. But this part, he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And again, for us, this is so foreign because we don't really, or we think we don't really do this. And he says, you know, don't, don't take... And for example, they made the golden calf, right? He's saying, don't do that. Don't take a graven image. Don't take something, don't, don't carve like an eagle and worship it. Or don't, you know, don't make an idol, we would, we would say. This is the idea of idolatry. And I know for our modern ears, we think, this is, why did this have to be the first command? Is this really that big of a problem that that many people were carving images and making idols to, to worship? And then how does that apply to us? If it's that big of a deal... And it is that big of a deal because go all the way to the end of the book. Go all the way to the book of Revelation and what do we have? We have the Antichrist creating an image that people bow down and worship. And the image comes to life and people worship it. Yeah, it's that big of a deal. It's through the whole thing. But I know for us, idol worship in its, in its realest sense of having a physical idol that we worship, we may think, well, that doesn't really apply to us. Is it, that really big? Is that, is it really that big of a deal? Well... For the American culture, you know, we've become too sophisticated for that, right? We don't bow down to idols. But you need to understand the principle, and you need to understand what is at play here and what is really going on. So let's back up even to, for example, the golden calf. Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law and the commandments from God. While he's up there, the people of Israel make themselves a golden calf. Calf. And you know what they called it? Yahweh. That's the name of God. The holy name of God that for generations people didn't even know that that was his name. It was first revealed to Moses at the burning bush. They take the holy name of God and they call the, the golden calf Yahweh. They say, this is Yahweh who delivered us out of Egypt. Now why... Do they do that? Let me, let me just really tell you plainly why they did it and why we still do it today. They did it because they don't actually like the real God. See, they, they know he's God, but they don't actually like the real God. And here's why. They don't like the real God because the real God has a lot of stuff that you're supposed to do and not do. The real God has a lot of ideas and, and declarations about how you are supposed to live your life and what you are supposed to do. And so in changing it, what they do is we still want God, we still want the idea of God, but we're going to change him just a little bit into our own image that we want him to be. And this is what I see happening in many Christians' lives and, and in our nation is 
the true God is rejected and the, the true God is replaced with a false God that has all the attributes that we want him to have. For example, when people do this now, modern day, they may say things like this. I hear people say this all the time. They'll say, well, you know, God is a God of love and he doesn't judge anyone. Okay, that's not true. It is true that God's a God of love. It's not true that he doesn't judge anyone. Totally false. The scripture reveals God to be who he is, and you didn't like that, and so you, you changed it into what you wanted him to be. Or I hear I people say, well, you know, it doesn't bother God that I'm like this, or I'm born like this, and they name X, Y, Z, sin, or, you know, this about their sexuality, or this, uh, this, whatever, and they're like, well, the God that I serve, you know, loves all people, for example, say, okay, here's what you're doing, you've rejected the true God, and you've built an idol of a false God, and you're worshiping that idol. Now, it may not have, it may not be a statue, but the statue's irrelevant. The statue's not the important part. What's the important part is what's going on in your, in your heart. And don't think that this isn't happening or, or trying to happen in every one of our hearts all of the time. This is not for a specific group. This, the, every person in this room can be affected by this. Because there are parts that you will read in Scripture. There are commandments when it comes, uh, when it comes to, for, like we talked about last week, tithing. When it comes to church attendance. When it comes to sin. When it comes to relationships, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to gender, when, name all the hot topics of the day. God has a determination about it, and he's made a statement about it, and this is how he feels about it, and we have a choice. To accept it and yield and submit to the true God, or to reject the true God and, and put up a false God in his place that we worship and we pretend like that's Yahweh, when actually he says, you've rejected me. And you've turned from me. So idol worship is still a very real thing in our lives and in our culture. And the, the best and most important thing that you can do as a believer is decide up front. I accept God, the true God, and I worship the true God for everything that he is, everything that he's done, everything that he's ever said. I accept God and worship him as the true God. Well, what if, I, what if, I, if I read something in the Bible that seems really, really hateful or really hurtful or, or it, you know, just, it just seems to be so offensive to the modern culture? Well, you've got to ask yourself, do you worship the culture or do you worship God? And, and here's been always my approach. If I read something in the Bible that I don't understand, I've got two cho- choices. I can jump to God is wrong, there's a problem with God, or I can jump to there's something wrong up here. And I need to change. I need to grow. I need to improve in my understanding maybe of what love is, of what judgment is, of what worship is, of what holiness is. But I'm not going to try to edit God. I'm not going to try to change God. I'm not going to try to build a false idol of who God is and worship that. No, I want to worship the true God. Every, Every aspect, every part, everything I see in the Word. You know, some people have a problem with, well, there's a lot of problems. I mean, some people have a problem with God flooded the earth in the days of Noah. God flooded the whole earth. Only people stayed alive was Noah. Guess what? I accept and worship that God. That's the God I serve and worship. 
Does it mean I understand everything perfectly? No, it, no, it does not. And, and, I, and I yield to that because I'm not a God. I'm a human. And I don't understand everything that the true God did. But here's what I know. I give, I give him the benefit of the doubt because he's God. And I say, one day, God, you can explain it all. And I believe that when I get there and you lay it all out and you explain it and I have full understanding, I'm thinking it's going to make, I don't think anybody's going to get there and hear the full explanation of God and his thoughts and how he did things and go, you know, I still disagree. I think everyone's going to go, man, I was so blind. I was so off. I, I didn't have the full picture. This makes so much sense now. I mean, we do that with each other. Right, you hear something about a family member or a friend, you go, what were they thinking, those idiots? And then you go talk to them, and they explain themselves, and you go, oh, well, that, okay, that makes a little more sense. How many of you know when we, get to, when we get to the other side, everything's going to make sense? And listen, every man will be proved a liar, but God will be true. So you have to make a decision and a determination, what kind of Christian are you going to be? Are you going to be a Christian that embraces God wholeheartedly with everything in you? Every word he said, every decision he's made, every judgment he made, everything of who he is, unscrubbed, unedited, God of the Bible. Or are you going to edit certain parts to make it palatable for you and for your culture and for your family? Because more and more what's happening is the God of the Bible doesn't jive with the God of the culture. More and more, the God of the Bible doesn't fit in this American culture. More and more, his, his ways, his ideas, his thoughts, his word is offensive to the culture. And so the tendency is to make it slightly more palatable. But listen, first of all, that's never going to work. That's never going to work. You're not going to make God more palatable and actually help people. Because all you're doing is you're giving them a false idol. And that, and that idol has no power. It's not the true God. No, the true God is the God of the Bible. And listen, he doesn't need your help to be him. This is why when he revealed himself to Moses, he said, God, he said Moses asked God, he said, well, who are you? Who do I tell him? He said, listen, I am who I am. And when he goes on to explain it, and you really further understand what he was saying there, what he is saying is, I'm not dependent on anyone, okay? I'm, I have no help that, that helped me to exist or be who I am. And I, I, I was, I am, and I will be apart from anything to do with you or anything that you say about me. I've existed for, well, I'd say billions of years, but that would be too short. I've existed forever. I always will exist with or without you. I have, I, my existence has no connection or dependency on you but every single thing else in this entire universe cannot say that it is dependent on him and so what he is saying is i am who i am with or without you in other words what you call me doesn't change who i am what you say about me doesn't change who i am whatever you he was telling moses whatever you go tell them about me doesn't change who i am i am who i am so just go tell them the i am sent you because that's what they need to know about me it literally means the self-existent one. Self-existent one. Not created. Always here. See, we can't understand that about God. How was he always here? How, how was he not created? How do you go back for eternity and he's, and he's still here? How? Our minds can't understand that. And yet we try to edit God. 
we try to change him because we got smart and we got educated. And we go, oh, well, this isn't, you know, this isn't very civilized that, that, that this would happen that way or God would judge this or judge that. Listen, you are not in a position to judge God. And I don't care how many PhDs you have behind your name. I don't care how smart, how intellectual, how many books you wrote. You are not in a position to judge God. And when you stand before God, when all of us stand before God, we will find out how foolish and how shallow and how ignorant our understanding really is and really was. So you only have one thing. That is to humble yourself. Humble yourself before Almighty God and say, I'm not God, you are, and I worship you. I, I yield to you and I worship you. That's how you prevent your heart from idol worship. So he said, as they come into the land, don't create these carved images. Don't get into idol worship. And again, it can seem like a strange command, but see, God knows something about human beings, namely this, that we are designed to worship. And so we're going to worship something. Now, this is, this is one of the most important things you can understand about yourself. Okay, You are going to worship something. People who reject God, y'all remember the old Bob Dylan song? Y'all want me to sing it for you this morning? Because yeah. you're going to have to serve somebody. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know. It might be the devil. I, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. It might be the Lord. You know, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, he got it right on that. He got it right. You're going to serve something because you were designed to worship. So what ends up happening in every person's life, is they are worshiping something. They are serving something. It may not be the true God. It may be pleasure. It may be their job. It may be a relationship. It may be drugs or alcohol. It may be themselves. Okay? But everybody is serving and worshiping something because this is part of our fundamental DNA, how we were designed. We were designed to worship. We were not designed to be gods. We were designed to be worshipers of the true God. So God knows this. This is why he makes this the first commandment. He says they're going to worship something. And, and here's what I, he's trying to tell them. He said, look, if you reject the true God, you're going to end up worshiping another God. And... and what he's trying to get them to see is whatever you end up worshiping, whatever you end up serving other than the true God is going to end up destroying your life. Because there are no other, there are no other gods. There's only other taskmasters. There's only other things that will put you in bondage. It, it's a deception. It leads down a true... I don't care what it is. If you serve it and you worship it and you put it in that place of God, it will end up destroying your life. Many of you have experienced this. Me, I talk to people all the time that they made this mistake. They put other things first in the place of the true God. It always leads to destruction. Just follow the trail. It will always lead to destruction in a person's life. But God knows this, and he, so he says, look, don't, do not go after other gods. Serve the true God. Worship me. And he said, everything in your life will be in the proper place and in the proper order. But if you get outside of that, it's, gonna be, it's not going to end well for you. Now, what does it mean for something to be an idol or a false god in your life? Okay, let's give a few parameters 
principles for because it can be hard for us to identify these things sometimes. So number one, if something is an idol or false god in your life, that means that it has power over you to direct your decision making. Okay, this is the Lord aspect. So I'm comparing this to true lordship with God. It has power over you to direct your decision making. Okay, again, this is the Lord aspect. Let's talk about it from the proper way. If God is my Lord, it directs my decisions. Okay? If, if I read in his word that I'm not supposed to do something, that settles it. If I read in the word that I'm supposed to do something, that settles it. Why? Because he's Lord. And so it directs my decision making. And it's the highest factor. It's the highest factor in my decision-making. And I can say, well, yeah, but I want to do this, or my mama does this, or my friends do this, or the culture. The highest factor is God said, and so I yield to that because he's God in my life. And so he is Lord, and so he has power over my decision-making. My, my belief in him, my trust in him, my worship of him directs my decision making how many times in my life have I made a decision for no other reason only then because I believed that God wanted me to do it many times maybe you've done the same thing I know why I know I'm in Alexandria for that reason I was in Shreveport before this for that reason cities I've lived the person I married all these things they had to do with what I believed God wanted for my life, much less his word that is clear and plain saying, do this, don't do that. It, direct, it directs your decision. Now, what if God's not in that place? Well, something is directing your decision making. Okay, I've, I've seen people lose their entire family, their marriage, their kids, because they, they were successful in business and they were making a lot of money and that was their God and it was directing their decision making. So, wife wanted them to come home early, but Job, money was directing their decisions. Wife wanted this, but job wanted this, and or I wanted this, however you want to put it. You know, I knew I, I wanted to be in church on Sunday. I wanted to be faithful going to church, but my job this. My jo- that's your God. It's, it's directing your decision making. I'm not talking about if you have a job that makes you, that you have to miss church every now and then. Many people have that. I'm, not, I'm talking about where this is the God in your life, and it directs everything, and everything else will suffer because of it. See, that place is only proper when God holds that place. There are, th- there are things in my life that suffer because of my relationship with God. There, there are other relationships, other things that I don't do that I'm not part of because God is number one in my life. So number one, does it have power over you to direct your decision making? If there's anything in your life that you listen to more than God or his word, then that thing is effectively God in your life. You might not have carved a little image. You might not have made a little statue. But that thing is God in your life. We talked about this with money last week. The Bible talks about money being in that place a lot. Matter of fact, Jesus said you cannot serve God and money. You will love the one or you will hate the other. You cannot serve both. You can have both. You can have money and you can have, you can have God. But you can't serve both. And there's a big difference. On the other hand, I've seen people that have, concerning money specifically, I've seen people that have sacrificed large amounts of money to do the will of God. 
that doing the will of God cost them and the blessings that come on their life as a result. Okay, number two. So number one, it has a power over you to direct your decision-making. Number two, it has captured your devotion and adoration. This is the worship aspect. So God is Lord in our life, but we also worship him. We also worship him. This is different than lordship. Right? If you, if you had a boss or somebody over you that's telling you what to do, they might be a lord over you in that sense. They're telling you what to do, but you may not worship them. Like, I'm doing what you're telling me because you're over me, but that don't mean I worship you. So the first one deals with lordship. The second one deals with worship. It has captured your devotion and your adoration. You, you worship it. You're enamored by it. It consumes your thoughts. It's what you live for. It's what you fight for. It's what you protect at all costs. It trumps everything else because it is so important to you. And, and look, don't kid yourself because you might say, oh, yeah, well, I really like this thing, but it ain't to that degree. Again, I, I've said this so many times in this church, you, can, you will always be able to find true worship in someone's life. It may not be in church. It may not be in their relationship with God. But if I went home with you and I spent a week or two with you, I would find that thing in your life that you truly worship. Maybe what you worship is entertainment. And, and, and you just fill yourself all day with entertainment and, and you just veg out on Netflix all day and we could just go down the list. I even hate naming things because then people are like, oh, well, I, didn't, I don't do that. That's not my thing. Yeah, but what is your thing? <laughs> and you will always find true worship in somebody's life. You just have to spend time and you got to know where to look to find true worship. And this is what I'm saying. There shouldn't be anything in your life that you worship more than God. There shouldn't be any person, any, any idea, any desire that you worship more than you worship God. Now, we're just talking about the adoration aspect. Now, we've talked so much in this church about devoting the first and best part of our day to God in worship, in prayer. And I, you know, I, I love to get up in the mornings and go spend time with God. I usually begin my day with worship. I've got a little piano in my, in my prayer room, and I'll go and I'll worship God. And I'll spend time worshiping. And what is worship? Well, I, I'm intentionally thinking about all the reasons that I love God and all the reasons why I follow God and all the things that he's done for me and what he's done on the cross and if he never did anything else for me. And I'm reminding myself of why God is who he is and why he is so great and why he deserves to be worshipped. If you have a person doing that daily, it tends to put things in perspective. And when you go out and the other things that the world worships and that they hold in high esteem, they just pale in comparison when you've been worshipping the true God. When you've been giving adoration to the true God, everything else pales in comparison. So it's captured your devotion and your adoration. You could... Another way to judge this is, what do, you get, what do you truly get excited about in life? I made a joke one time uh, with some friends because we, we had a friend that, uh, <laughs> that he just has real melancholy, you know, and he, he never really had, he never really got excited about anything. Like, he never got excited, he never got, he was just real neutral, you know, real kind of even keel. And one day we were all in a room talking, and somebody, this is hilarious, okay, this is before... This is before Whataburger even came to Pineville or Alexandria. Somebody mentioned Whataburger. 
And I, I saw the dude act like I've never seen, I've never seen him act before. He was like, Whataburger, oh, man, you, ever, you guys ever had them taquitos at Whataburger? He started talking about taquitos. We all looked at each other. I'm like, dude, you're more excited about taquitos than I've ever seen you excited about anything in your life. Like, is that what it takes to get you excited? Now, this is why I say, now, I'm sure he didn't worship taquitos exactly, but the point is, what is it that gets you excited? What is it that causes you to come to, come to life? What, what is it that if you come to church and you're like this, bored, half asleep, worship's going on, you know, don't read your Bible, don't pray, there's nothing about God, it doesn't get you excited. Now you can say, oh, I love God, I love God. I'm, I know, but I'm looking at you and I'm going, we can't tell. <laughs> but then if we talk about football, or we bring up something else, taquitos, whatever else, man, the light's going, the passion comes up. Is there something wrong with that? There's something wrong with that. And I'm not, I don't think God cares if you like taquitos, that's fine. But when his name comes up, or we have dedicated time in our service to worship his name, there needs to be a little bit of oomph. There needs to be a little bit of passion. There needs to be something that lets him know you're the most important thing in my life. And I don't worship anything like I worship you. And so we can say what we want, but, but every now and then we've got to pull back and question, yeah, but how does my heart really feel? Yeah. I mean, when I think about church, when I think about God, when I think about His Word, what are the true feelings and emotions that I have? When I get ready to go to church, is it, oh, God, here we go again. I know I've got to do it. Get, get, get the kids ready, you know. Do it. Or is it like, I can't wait to be in the presence of God with the people of God worshiping Him? When you think about prayer. Now, listen. There is, there is virtue in doing something even though the feeling is not there and you don't feel like it. Don't make any mistake about it. There's a lot of honor in that and there's a lot of virtue in that about doing things that are right even though you, you don't have the feeling. But that's not the state that you want to continue in year after year, decade after decade. If that's you and, and something's going on, you've got to ask, what is it then that has captured my devotion and my worship? Because something has. Something has. Number three. Number three is you are looking. This is a big one, guys. If you are looking to it, talking about the idol. How do you know if something is an idol in your life? If you are looking to it to do something for you that it cannot do. Now, let, let's, let's go back to these carved images. The reason why there was idol worship, there was false gods in every culture, every society, is because they wanted a god that would do something for them. This is why they had the rain god. They, they wanted that god to bring them rain. For them, it was, they had to have it. They were so dependent on it. The sun god, god of the harvest, god of wine, god, on and on. Why? They needed that god to do something for them that it could not do because it was a false god. So they, they wanted it to provide something for them that it was never going to provide, but they believed that it could provide it. So it was this sort of false relationship where I'm going to dance, we're going to do this rain dance, you know, and it's going to give us this thing that we need, or we're going to appease this God with this sacrifice, and we're going to get this in return. How many of you know that's not the relationship that we have with the true God? 
the, the relationship that we have with the true God is the opposite. It's not about what you can do for me. It's about what I can do for you. Because I'm the servant and you're God. And while we do get things from God, while we are encouraged to pray to God, that's not why we serve him. That's not why we worship him. And, and when a person has the, the true heart and right heart, their attitude is this. I'll serve you, live for you if I never get anything in return. I'm just serving you because that's who you are and this is who I am. And I know my place and I know your place. But with false gods, it was always about looking for that thing to do something in your life that actually it had no power to do. And I see this in our Christian culture as well. We turn to things and, and we're looking for them to do something in our life that they cannot do. Okay? We, we want it to bring us that joy, that lasting satisfaction, that enjoyment in life. But it's short-lived, and it burns out, and it's not, it, it's not lasting, and it can never do what you're looking for it to do. There's so many areas of this that we could look at. One of the areas that I sometimes see it in is in marriage. I see sometimes people in marriage that are never happy. And they're never happy... There, there could be a lot of reasons for this, but I see this one a lot. They're never happy because they're looking for their spouse to do something in their heart that only God can do. Another person can never make you happy like that. Another person will never fulfill your dreams, that you will never be completely fulfilled. Okay, they're not going to be that hallmark, you know, version of a husband. Trust me, I'm the closest, and it just, it ain't even, no. My wife's not in here, so I can say that because she... Your, ne- your spouse, oh wait, there she is. <laughs> Shh, don't say anything. But they, they can't, they'll never do that because it's only God that can bring you that level of fulfillment. So there are people in marriages that they're never happy. They're never happy with their spouse because all they can see is all the areas that they're falling short. You don't do this, you never do this. I ask you to do this, you don't see this. It's all their faults over and over and over again. Uh, let me tell you something. A person that is truly fulfilled in God, a person who is full to the brim in their relationship with God, is such a blessing to be married to because they're not looking for you to give something to them that only God can give. The most miserable person in the world to be married to is someone who is expecting you to do something in their life that only God can do. The best person in the world to be married to is someone who's so full of God that I can, I can deal with all your faults and all your junk because I'm so full of God. I can just love you right where you're at, and I'm so full of God. But many times, this is what we have. God is not in his proper place, and so we're looking for idols. We're looking for these things. We're grasping everywhere else to try to fill that empty hole in our heart. So you look for it to do something that it cannot do. So to me, if we're going to be good stewards of what God has given us, we have to get this straight first. We have to get this straight first because good stewardship leads to having more things in our life. But those things will destroy you if you don't have this right, if God's not first in your life. Now, what I want you... Really what I want you to get out of, this, out of this sermon is that God's big focus on idol worship, okay, about you'll have no other gods before me and 
You're not allowed to do idol worship and all of that. His big focus is not for him, it's for you. It may seem like when you read it that he's saying, hey, I'm going to be in this place and you need to keep me in this place. And that would be fine if that's what he was doing. That, that would be his prerogative and there would be no problem with that. But I promise you, actually what God cares about is you. And he knows the dead end that's at the end of that road. He knows the destruction that's at the end of that road. He knows and he's seen, he's been around since the very first human being. He has seen so many people chase things in this life and go after things in this life that did nothing but destroy them and it ended in nothing but tragedy. And he's, he's telling you, he's giving you the answers at the very beginning of the test. He's saying, don't put any other gods before me. Put me first in your life. It's going to be in your benefit. It's going to be in your best interest to do this. See, this is why... God fights for you. God fights for us when we go astray, when we, when we do put these other things ahead of him. He fights for us to, to help us get back on, to back on track. So these are why you have things in your life that uh, in the scripture that he tells us to do that some, may not make sense to you. Last week we talked about tithing. Now, we serve a God that the Bible says lives and walks on streets of gold. Okay, He says all the cattle, all the silver, all the gold is mine. So when you think about tithing and you go, what, God needs my money? Far from it. God doesn't need your money. I, I promise you that. This church is a testimony to that because we've done things in this church that could have never been done through just the tithes that come in from this church. We, we had to have miracles from outside. God did it. God doesn't need your money. But, he, but you need to tithe because of what we're talking about this morning. Okay, so he, so he has the tithe set up as protection for you so that money doesn't become a god in your life. It doesn't become an idol. Every time that you tithe, something dies in you. Something is sacrificed. You're making an announcement. Money is not God in my life. God is. Okay, what about coming to church? This is the worship aspect we were talking about. Okay, every time you set... Sunday aside, and you, you lay aside what you wanted to do on that day. You laid aside your hobbies or your sleeping in or what, whatever self wanted. You laid it aside and you come to church. Again, you're affirming God is God in my life. This hobby, this entertainment, this football, this, this you know, sleeping in, whatever I want to do is not God. God is God, and I will put him first on, on this day of the week. So c- coming to church helps do that. It helps solidify that in your life. What about serving and sacrificing for others? Why is there so much in the scripture about serving and sacrificing others? Because the, the tendency is for self to become God in our lives. And every time we serve someone else and we sacrifice for someone else, we are taking self off the throne and we're putting God back in his proper place. So all of these instructions that we have from Scripture, they're there for our own protection. They are there so that we stay healthy and in line. It's not because God is just a God that loves laws and loves rules and just wants to boss us around. Everything he tells us to do is there for our own protection and for, for a good reason. Now you might be thinking about this and thinking, well... That this is a great sermon, Pastor Josh, you know, and everything, but why are we talking about it in the stewardship series? Well, 
Be, the reason that we're talking about it in the stewardship series is because, again, when you are a good steward, God wants to entrust you with more. But sometimes I have seen people that they could have been entrusted with more, but they didn't have this right. And God didn't want to give them more and put more on them because it was just going to lead them away from him. And this is the same thing he was telling the Israelites in the very beginning. He said, you're going into the promised land. I'm about to give you everything your heart desired. But here's the pitfalls. And here's the traps. And here's the the deceitfulness of this. And we've all seen this. You know, when somebody's in a desperate place, tragic place... They've got no hope, no answers. They always turn to God. But once everything's going good and everything's going right and, they, and everything's going well and they don't really need God anymore, somehow he gets put on the back burner. And so what I'm telling you is that in order for us to be good stewards, we need to get this straight. We need to be like Paul the Apostle where he said, I know how to live full I know how to abound, and I know how to be abased and have nothing. And either way, I'm good. I serve God either way. In the good times, in the bad, when I've got a lot, and I've got plenty, and I've got little, or I've got nothing, I know how to serve God and live for God. The more that, the, the more that you have these things in their right place, the more that God can trust you with and the more that God can give you. <laughs> 